In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. The darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created outside of him. The Word gave life to everything, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Good morning. We want to welcome you and say welcome home. Some of you were here with us last week. It was a great celebration to be back uh, to gather together again. Maybe this is your first Sunday back, and we're uh, excited that you are here. Welcome home to, to Radiant. And if you're a guest with us, we want to say a special welcome to you. It is Father's Day, so we do want to wish uh, you a happy Father's Day. That's you. If you are a father, have a father, know a father, wish to be a father, um, met a father, have a father next door, whatever, happy Father's Day. As you leave today, we do have a gift for you. You saw that tent as you walked in. There will be a table out there with a gift for all of our fathers or uh, anyone who knows the father, wants to be a father, all that, right? At the same time, it was brought to my attention by some very wise women that on Mother's Day, we were in our homes and we were doing this on television. So we have a belated Mother's Day gift for you. Yeah, you can clap, go ahead. Also, some very wise women said the, the, the belated Mother's Day gift ought to be chocolate. So, uh, happy belated Mother's Day to you. Before we get to the message, let's uh, open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. What a great privilege we have to, to gather together. Something that for, uh, for many of us, for, for a long time, we probably take for granted. At least we took it for granted until this most recent season. And now we find ourselves with the joy when we walk in this door, this door the, the excitement in the foyer to see one another because you've called us not to, to come and sit, but to, to live life together. And that's what's taking place in this building today. We rejoice and thank you. And for those who are part of this congregation but not yet ready to come back, Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that, uh, that they also know just how loved and how missed we understand uh, the realities of the world we live in, but uh, we are the church, gathered and scattered. May we be that church, in Jesus' name, amen. You know what, I wanna take this opportunity to thank our staff. Um, I meant to do this last week, it was our first week back, but uh, over the last three months, our staff has worked really hard it's funny because I uh, talk to other pastors who are like, I think we're working harder to do the stay home thing. We're not showing up on Sunday, but we're all exhausted to do what we do. And I'm just blessed to work with a great team here who has stepped up and done things differently for a season. Uh, Jordan V has been kind of the spearhead of the, the digital presence, helping us communicate and, and be together online over the last three months. But uh, Angela Gately is coming in and filming those kids' messages, but even the office staff, everybody has, has really stepped up. So can we take this opportunity to thank our staff here at this church? 
my wife is telling me to do something, but I don't know exactly what she's telling me to do. No, okay, all right. It is Father's Day, and I, I'll make a promise to you, and I think I might have promised this last year on my first Father's Day as pastor. Uh, I don't preach Father's Day messages. You see, for all the years I've been in church life and, and ministry, I, I've had friends, mostly friends, tell me, Jerome, I skip church on Father's Day because Mother's Day is always this gushing, glowing, we love you moms, you do so well, your husbands don't appreciate you, blah, 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 your kids don't, you know, moms are the greatest, and then Father's Day rolls around a month later, and it's like, fathers, step it up. A bunch of slackers, you got to do better. Am I right? Is that how it works? It seems like, so I know guys who legitimately say, I skip Father's Day. The guy who sits right there, there, all these empty chairs are those fathers. You think it's about COVID, but it's about Father's Day messages. Fortunately for us, we're preaching through the, the we're going through the, the book of John, and so we're going to continue with our text, but I'm not above using fathers as an illustration to start off the message. You see, when I was a kid, I, I looked up to my father, I still do, but in a different way. When I was a kid, my father was strong and could handle anything, right? Not everyone has a father like that, but my father was that way, that, that I, I knew that there was security, I knew that there was safety, that anything that took place to our, to our family, anything that was happening outside of our home, my dad could take care of it. And I, as I got older, probably early teens, you realize, like, my parents don't have all the, the right answers. And then I became a father myself, and I realized my own limitations, and I questioned my ability to actually provide safety and security for all the things that may come about. Am I the only one, like, you remember that moment where you're like, huh, our fathers maybe are human. Then you become a father, and you're like, I really am human. I think sometimes we, we walk with the Lord in a very similar way. That, that moment we come to him and he is the God who's in control and he has everything under his charge. We sing songs like I'm standing on that rock like we sang this morning. We make proclamations that, that, that God is absolutely in control. We, we encourage one another with those words, but sometimes I think we say those more as a wish, like God's in control and I'm hoping I believe it when I say it more than a proclamation of faith. Because the world sometimes feels like it's out of control. In many ways, either my own world or our world together. We walked in the door today and many of you may feel that maybe you did scan the headlines or social media and you feel like, boy, there's just so much that's going on and things are out of control. I need a reminder that God is in charge. And the good news is that's what today's text is about. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 6. As you turn to John chapter 6, let me give you a little background. Uh, we are going through the book of John, and uh, you'll recall that John wrote this at the late first century, decades into the church's existence. He was a disciple of Jesus. He writes his account of, of Jesus' life and ministry, and he writes for the purpose that people would have faith, that they would believe, and in believing that they would have life. Now, the flow of the book, because it is, there is, there's certain themes that take place that, that show up. There's certain uh, sections within the book that make up the whole. We're in a section where we see reservation and hesitation about Jesus turn to outright opposition to Jesus. And chapter six fits just that. We've been in chapter six. I'll be honest with you. This is our fourth message in this chapter. I have no intention of doing that again. Uh, most of the time, we've gone one or two messages through a chapter. But this one, we've really taken slow, this bread of life chapter. But in, this, in chapter 6, we've seen a number of things. Jesus feeds 5,000. 
the crowd is so excited that, they, that, that he's performed this miracle that they want to force him to be king, that he escapes from them because that's not the kind of king he came to be. They track him down on the other side because he walks across the water. They track him down and they're like, do it again. And Jesus calls them out for their motivation of wanting to follow him because he filled their stomachs more than that they really want to be with him. He points out that he is the one who really brings satisfaction that he is the bread of life. And he begins to talk about if you, if you, if you have to eat this flesh and, and, and drink this blood, he begins to speak very figuratively about a relationship with him. And the religious leaders and the crowd struggle with the words that, that are coming out of his mouth. Like, I don't, I don't know, Jesus. And that's where we start our passage today, where we left off last week. John chapter 6, starting in verse 60. Let me read it to you. Many of his disciples said, this is, a very, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Jesus, Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, so he said to them, does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing, and the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you do not believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe, and he knew who would betray him. Then he says, that is why I said that people cannot come to me unless the Father gives them to me. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the 12 and asked, are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus said, I chose the 12 of you, but one is the devil. He is speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, one of the 12 who would later betray him. The very first half of this, of what we just read, the first five verses, we see the disciples complain that what Jesus said is, is a hard saying, that they are troubled by what he's saying. Earlier we saw religious leaders say that, but now it's the, it's the crowd, it's the, it, the, the disciples who are complaining. Now, let me, let me be clear here. When we read disciples here, we're talking about those who literally followed Jesus, not necessarily the 12 disciples. When we think of the word disciples, we hear that, we think of those guys. There's a differentiation here in, the chap in chapter six where John calls them the 12, and then these are the disciples. The disciples have a hard time. They said, this is hard to understand, not because it was confusing, which it may be, but because it was difficult. The Greek word there is scleros, which is the hard, difficult, even offensive. The things that Jesus was saying was offensive. Why is it so offensive? Why is it so difficult? To, why is it so hard to swallow for these disciples? See, we've seen a number of things that, has, that have taken place in chapter six, a number of things that Jesus has said. That he's called them out for not really being interested in spiritual truth. They're interested in filling their stomachs and benefiting from another miracle, even political gain by making him king. We've seen that Jesus has complained that he's greater than Moses. That's disturbing. We've seen him say, well, using the metaphor of eating flesh and drinking blood, all of this is, 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 is difficult, but he's talking about relationship with me and, and, and fighting satisfaction in me. And they're saying, this is hard. Who can do this? Jesus' response to them and their admission of difficulty is, is that... You think you had a problem with, well, because earlier, earlier in this chapter, verse 38, he says, I'm the one who came down from heaven. So his response now 
is, you think you had a problem with me coming down from heaven? Wait till you see me ascend to where I came from. It's only going to get better, baby, or worse for them. And then verse 63, he talks about spirit and life. The words that he has spoken is spirit and life. The words that Jesus spoke to his disciples would be offensive if they could not see what he was really saying and understand what he was really saying. Then they would actually see that he is indeed the bread of life. Verse 64, he says, some of you do not believe. See, Jesus knew coming into this thing that there would be those who would reject him. Earlier, he said that the Father is the one who draws hearts to him, and he recognizes that their unbelief is to be expected. Then verses 66 through 70, where we read that the disciples abandoned him. Once again, not the 12, but the disciples, those who literally followed Jesus, the crowd of people that hopped in the boat, went to the other side of the lake because they wanted to follow him and this miracle worker who was providing bread They've abandoned him. His response to their complaint was not, oh, I'm so sorry this is difficult and hard to swallow. Let me make it a little bit easier for you. His response to them was like, no way. I'm gonna make things worse. I'm gonna say these things. And their response was, I'm out. See, this text does not say how many disciples actually turned away. But the language of him looking at the 12 saying, what about you guys? Are you gonna stick around? Leads me to believe that a whole lot of them bailed. Like if he had said a lot of disciples, many disciples left and then he looked through about 300 people and said, where's my 12? And then I, I mean, it doesn't say, but in my mind, I'm picturing like 5,000 people who were fed fishes and loaves, boom, gone. Now he's down to 12. He looks at them and says, do you want to go as way? You want to go away as well? Now the question that Jesus is asking isn't asking for his own sake. He's, he's not looking for assurance like, please, guys, don't bail on me. Please stay with me. He, he's not out of fear. He's asking for their benefit. He's asking because they need to articulate a response on who Jesus is and what they will do. And Peter gives that response. Is that any wonder that Peter's the one who's going to speak up first? What does Peter say? He gives us three different parts of this thing. First, he goes, well, where would we go? To whom would we go? There's no alternatives. Why is there no alternatives? Because you have the words of eternal life. We see for the first time in this chapter a declaration of faith and belief, a chapter full of unbelief and resistance. We see this moment of belief, this, this statement that comes from Peter. We have believed and we come to, we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, Peter's response points to a recognition of who Jesus is. But there's one thing that's really strange about this chapter. And we read it and we don't necessarily stop and say, I wonder why that's there. And I gotta be honest with you, this is not like Jerome's like, discovery. This has been pointed out in other places. But have you ever stopped and said, why is Judas, why is Judas mentioned twice in this thing? Like, he hasn't said anything. He hasn't done anything. And yet John feels like he needs to mention Judas. Going, he's gonna betray Jesus. Like, I don't know how you read your Bible, but I kind of read with a narrator voice. Like, so you know those movies where the characters are acting things out and then a voice comes and narrates, right? So I'm reading my Bible and, and, and I'm, I'm coming across like, Judas is standing there watching these disciples leave, abandon Jesus. He's standing there with the 12. And in verse 64, Jesus says, but some of you don't believe. And he's like, hmm. And then John, the narrator goes, 
For Jesus knew that from the beginning, I, mean, I can't do that voice. I'm just saying, you know, movie narrator voice. For Jesus knew that from the beginning, which ones didn't believe and he knew who would betray him. If there was that narrator voice that was taking place, this did not happen. I'm just saying, in Jerome's mind, when he reads the book of John, I hear that narrator voice. I just picture Judas going, um, well, that's a little close. That's a little awkward. And then in verse 70, Jesus brings them up. He says this, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is the devil? Here's where you're like, don't make eye contact with Jesus moment. And then the narrator comes back and calls them out. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. I'd be like, why? Why is this narrator doing this to me? For he was one of the 12 who was going to betray him. So why, why, why bring him up? A guy who has no role in this chapter whatsoever until he's called out for being the one who would betray the one Da, na, 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 na. because Judas was bad to the bone. That's why. No, that's okay. I can't let that ringtone go. Judas illustrates one of the major themes of this chapter, which is resistance and unbelief. A resistance and unbelief that intensifies as it goes on. First of all, thousands of people have walked away. Nearly everyone who ate the fishes and loaves have abandoned Jesus because of his words, unbelief and resistance. Then the religious leaders we saw last week challenged Jesus, what he was saying. They don't believe. His disciples abandoned him. And now in the midst of the 12, there is a traitor. When I said it went down from 5,000 to 12, maybe it went down from 5,000 to 11. Let me ask you this question. If you're standing on the outside looking in, who's winning right now? Is it Jesus? Doesn't look like Jesus is winning. Looks like the devil's winning. There's unbelief and resistance that grows stronger and stronger. The leaders are against Jesus. The crowds have abandoned him. There's a traitor in his inner circle, a traitor that Jesus calls a devil. And if you read the original language, and some scholars will say the original language is written in a way that says that Jesus isn't saying he is a devil. He is the devil. Like the devil is in their midst through Judas. So much unbelief. Jesus is losing. The devil is winning. But if you take a second look, maybe we'll see something a little different. Let's take a second look at this, this chapter. Now we're gonna back up all the way to verse 43 really quick. In response to the murmuring and the disagreement of the religious leaders, Jesus says this, stop complaining about what I said for no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them to me. He says this, you think you're in control by your objections and your opinions about who I am. You think you have the final word, but it's the father who draws people who has the final word. Verse 63, what we read today, in response to the disciples complaining that the words that he said were hard to swallow, were difficult. The spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. Jesus is saying, it is God, not man, who gives life because God is in charge. God is in control. Keep going, verse 64 to 65. Again, to the, claim, to the complaining disciples, Jesus says, but some of you don't believe. That's why I say that people cannot come to me unless the Father gives them to me. This is a reiteration of that idea that the Father draws that we saw him say to the religious leaders last week. Your unbelief, your opinion of who I am, 
it's not proof that you are in control. It's actually proof that God's in control because it's the Father who draws hearts. And then in verse 67 through 7, dealing with his own 12 disciples, Peter replies, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've, we believe, we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Even his profession of faith, Jesus responds in the same way he said to the unbelievers. Don't think that your profession of faith is that you're in control. The Father draws. I chose you, is what he said. The Father draws hearts. <laughs> and then Judas. Jesus puts the exclamation part, point on who's in control. Jesus puts the exclamation point on this idea that the Father is in control, that God is in control. I chose you, but one of you is a devil. I'm so much in control that I chose you, and I put Judas right where I wanted him to be. That's how in control I am. See, the devil is not winning in this passage. It may look like failure, it may look like the devil is influencing resistance and unbelief, and he certainly is. But Jesus is absolutely in control. And I like to think of him at really being at peace in this moment. Abandoned by 5,000, by every metric we have, he is failing. And he looks at them walk away, and he's not shaken. The devil is not in charge. Man is not in charge. But God is in charge. He is the bread of life who speaks words of eternal life. So we don't, and this is the, the big idea, don't fret when God's plans, his people, and his purposes are met with resistance. Peace comes from recognizing that he is absolutely in charge. Do not fret when it seems like God's plans, his people, and his purposes are failing. He's in charge. I mentioned in my intro about needing a reminder that, that God is absolutely in charge despite our world feeling out of control. There's your reminder. That world was out of control. Everyone had turned away or turned against him. And there he is, I think, in my mind, kind of calm, cool, and collected to the point where he says, I chose you, even Judas, the traitor in this inner circle. To John's audience who were reading this at the end of the first century, this was really good news. John was writing to a church that had been in existence for a couple of decades, but in AD 64, there was a fire in Rome called the Great Fire of Rome. That's a original, you know, very, very creative name. And, and Nero, who was the emperor of Rome, blamed the Christians for this fire, and that's when persecution broke out the first time it really broke out against Christians. Up to that point, it had been like the, the Jewish people saying that, you know, this Jesus sect is, is, is not right. It's, a, it's an abomination. But, but now he has the, the government who's, who's persecuting and killing Christians. Their world was out of control. But to them, this glimpse of God's sovereignty over a world that's out of control had to, be, had to speak peace to them and hope. This passage is full of res resistance and abandonment, but you see God's sovereignty over it all. Don't fret when God's plans, people, or purposes are met with resistance. Peace comes when we recognize that, it's that, God, that he is absolutely in charge. So here's what I'd like for you to do today as we apply this to our life. As we look at this, this text, this chapter as a whole, 
And we think about just how God is in control in the midst of circumstances that don't look like he's in control at all. Like, this is not how I would write this script, Lord. But this is how he wrote the script. First of all, I'd say, don't trust the crowd. Jesus didn't trust the crowd. Crowds lie, and crowds are fickle. And if you follow the crowd, you'll never follow Jesus. On top of that, I would say, don't trust your own eyes. See, there are two ways to read this this chapter. There's two ways to read this story. You can read it with the focus on the problems, the insurmountable odds that Jesus is now facing. Like, oh, I don't even know how this is going to be redeemed. How is this possibly going to have the happy ending that I am hardwired for? Everyone's turned away and against them. We see resistance mounting and growing stronger. You can read it with the focus on the problems, or you can read it with the focus on God's sovereignty that he's sovereign over the opposition. And the way you read this story translates into how you read your own circumstances, translates how you read your own world and the things that you're living in and through right now. Some of us have some shared experiences that we have to look through the eyes of God's sovereignty. Some of us have our own unique things that we don't share. Maybe read our own circumstances through the eyes of God's sovereignty over the situation. One pastor said this, God's sovereignty is our, in our situations a sanctuary for your soul when all hell breaks loose in your life and when you feel like everything is out of control and the devil is winning. Instead of seeing problems, see the sovereign God who's in control. When we sing, I stand upon that rock, look to the one who is that rock in the midst of that storm. If you're not a Christian and you're listening to this message, whether online or in person, I want to say thank you for joining us today. Jesus said a couple things in this chapter. He said, the spirit alone gives eternal life, but human effort accomplishes nothing. That's the message of the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his son to live in our place and to die in our place. And that the grace that we have been given is not because of our own. It's not because we've earned right standing with God, but because Jesus Christ has earned it on our behalf. See, religion says you have to earn your right standing with God. You have to work You have to be and do someone who's worthy. But Jesus says, no, I'm the one who's worthy. And because of my relationship with you, you get the credit. He's calling us to relationship. And then throughout this whole chapter, but in today's text in particular, people don't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. See, your opinion of who Jesus is isn't the final word either. His word about who he is is. There is a work of the Spirit that draws people to him, that opens hearts and minds to the message of Jesus. It's an invitation to believe, to cross that line of faith. And I'd ask you, how would you respond today to that invitation? The Bible says we just believe and call on him.
we're gonna sing a song to close this service. It's the, the same song we closed last week's service on because it's cool. No, I mean, it's, it's a great song. But I would reflect on the words of that song. It comes out of the book of Numbers where God tells Moses, tell Aaron to bless the people with, the, with these words. Numbers chapter 6, 24 through 26. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. To walk with that being true of you, to walk with the peace that he gives means we have to have a vision of his sovereignty over our circumstances. The blessing isn't may the Lord make everything easy, make his vacant circumstances your preference. May he bless you and protect you, be gracious to you. May we live with his sovereignty in mind so we could amen that and say, yes, Lord, I'm walking in that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word to us. We see this situation in scripture where Jesus is abandoned. He's losing by all our metrics from 5,000 to 12. Well, I guess 5,000 to 11. And yet through that whole situation, he speaks the sovereignty of God absolutely in control when it looks like God's plans, his people, and his purposes are failing. We thank you, Lord, that we can leave this place with a great trust that you are indeed in control and in charge. May we read our Bibles that way. May we read our world that way. In Jesus' name, amen.